At KUT, bringing you rigorous fact-based reporting is the highest priority. Even during uncertain times, KUT exists to serve the greater Central Texas community, and your support is what keeps this service strong. Give today at KUT.org. Thank you. It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate Two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. It is the most artificial thing humans have ever built that seems the most natural. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And I'm Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. This week on The Secret Ingredient, we are going high thunder. High funda is a term in Indian English that refers to something with high fundamentals. And we're going to begin this week with actually with the godfather of modern gastronomy, Jean-Anthelme Briat-Savarin. Uh, in, in 1848, this is the guy who invents gastronomy. And he writes the book, The Physiology of Taste. And before he gets into the physiology of taste, he's got um, a, a section called Aphorisms of the Professor. Uh, and his first aphorism is, The universe would be nothing were it not for life and all that lives must be fed. And the second thing is, animals fill themselves. Man eats. The man of mind alone knows how to eat. And the third thing he says is, the destiny of nations depends on the manner in which they are fed. Today's secret ingredient is nationalism. Uh, here to discuss it with us is Arjun Apadurai. He is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Media, Culture and Communication at the Steinhardt School of Culture, Education and Human Development at New York University. He is a social cultural anthropologist, a major theorist of globalization. Um, his most recent book is The Future as Cultural Fact, Essays on the Global Condition, that was published in uh, 2013 by Verso. Um, he is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, uh, and he has one of the biggest brains in globalization studies on the planet. <laughs> um, so we're going to ask him to, to, to talk today about nationalism and food. And in order to do that, Arjun, I wonder if you could just start us off by helping us understand what this thing, the nation, is. Um, Briant Savarin likes it. Uh, you've written a book about it. And so what is nationalism yeah that's a wonderful way to begin and the first thing the most important thing about the nation is that it is the most artificial thing humans have ever built that seems the most natural uh and it seems to be part of our uh, beings part of our history part of our furniture part of our assumptions and yet it's uh, essentially two or three hundred years old, depending where you are. It's a deliberate human fabrication. It's an artifice. And of all the artifices, though, it is the one not only that has become natural to us, but the one about which questioning its naturalness is likely to get you into serious trouble. So... Nations are like that, and nationalism is therefore uh, a very young historical sentiment, but uh, a very, very powerful, even primal one. 
But and when it comes to the nation, food is is kind of always there. I mean, we, we say as American as apple pie, for instance. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm I'm wondering what if you could tell us a little bit about your thinking around how food and nation come together. Yeah. Well, uh, I think there are two or three uh, reasons that underlie that deep and important uh, connection. <clears throat> The first is uh, the body. All nations, as I say, claim uh, to be built on natural affinities between some people as opposed to other people. And since uh, the claim is one about a natural affinity, it quickly becomes a bodily affinity and therefore frequently turns on questions like blood, parenthood, kinship, and then secondarily, things like language, food, and clothing, all of which are in fact body-related, the fo food being the most clear one. So since nations are about bodies that share something which other bodies do not share, what makes those bodies bodies is uh, can be seen in many ways, but food is never uh, separate from that. Food is what makes blood and food is what makes uh, children into adults and food is what makes our daily lives go around. So uh, it's natural that if nations are built on bodily affinities that the thing that makes the body tick, which is food, nourishment, should become a vital part of what makes this nation what it is in contrast to that nation. So, how does the rise of how does the rise of of the nation state um, affect a, a particular region's food culture? Like, how does it how does the food culture get caught up in the national project mm, and transform? Yes. Well, I think in many ways it's it's similar to the way what happens to language, for example, language being the 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 most studied in some way of these phenomena. And what happens is with food as with language and to some extent with other matters of comportment and lifestyle, that what is local or regional uh, becomes seen as a variation uh, on something larger, the larger being the nation. So that what happens in all nation states is some kind of process which uh, is often uh, fairly forceful, sometimes even violent, in which there's a kind of codification, in which cuisines that belong to this or that region or this or that locality or this or that ethnic group are seen to be variations on a theme. The funny thing, of course, is that the theme is national and the theme comes later. But then in the way the story is told, the regional cuisines begin to be seen as things that are variations on the pre-existing national theme. But the historical order is the reverse. Listening to you talk about food and, and in this discussion of food, it seems so integral to how we understand who we are and what we're yes. a part of. So why traditionally has food been ignored in large part by anthropologists? Yeah, that is a very big question. It puzzles me still. And... Uh, it's puzzling, particularly for anthropology, because anthropology, you know, is preoccupied with what makes humans human, 
in which food, of course, is very important. And the second question that anthropologists are almost equally interested in is what makes some humans feel that they're very different from other humans, which is the cultural question, which then becomes the national question. So those two primary questions of anthropology, what makes humans human and what makes some humans seem different from others, are really central and food ought to have been as important to this, in the history of anthropology as, for example, sex, kinship, and gender. And kinship, uh, which is involve, involves families, reproduction, uh, and uh, biology, is, uh, as you know, virtually the canonic heart of classical anthropology. But food remains something of a special interest even to this day, and in spite of some really great anthropologists having paid very serious attention to food, probably the single biggest name being uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss. Mm. So I'm not quite uh, sure to this day why food does not occupy a central place in anthropology textbooks, in anthropology classrooms, curricula, training, subdisciplines, and so on. But in none of those is it ever more than uh, a partial interest. Uh, and, and I think it has something to do with food being seen as somehow, indeed, as, as Bria Savarin saw it, a matter of taste, choice, preference, uh, rather than something that touches on our very humanity and on the very line between nature and culture. Now, anthropologists know this latter fact, but I think since anthropology is a modern Western discipline, food has come to be tied up with matters of taste, gastronomy, connoisseurship, and so on, and therefore seen as something uh, which is let's say, not a frill, but somewhat secondary in relation to sex, blood, and kinship. Uh, that's the best theory I can offer, but I still don't quite understand it. Well, I, I, I wonder whether, Arjun, in fact, you, you can find food at the beginning of anthropology, because, as you say, anthropology is, is one of these disciplines that emerges out of colonialism and the need to understand savages. Um, and yes. one of the ways that you can tell savages is that they eat each other. Cannibalism <laughs> is, is one of the things that yes. um, is sort of there at the beginning of the invention of the savage, right? The, the, you, can, yes. you, can tell, you can tell who they are because uh, the, the, their bodies are made of each other's bodies rather than us, whereas yeah. we, we eat, um, you know, uh, whatever it is, lamb or um, yes. you know, the, the, the traditional British diet or whatever, whatever it is. And, and in yes. fact, that... that brings brings me to to ask you a question about focusing this because um what yeah. one of your one of your absolutely wonderful uh pieces of work is how to make a national cuisine cookbook right. uh in contemporary india and right. um uh, this is a, a, an essay that you wrote oh nearly 20 20 years ago 30 years ago now Correct. yeah um and what what's what what makes us really want to talk about that now is that in india at the moment you're seeing um, a, a, a number of phenomena that are, I think are kind of disturbing. Uh, certainly mm, the, the rise yes. of beef bans you're seeing. Yes. Um, Muslims being killed by Hindus because uh, yep. they are allegedly eating beef. At the same time, yep. of course, that India is the world's largest beef exporter. It exports more beef than Brazil or Australia. Yeah. Um, and so uh, and I, I wonder if, if 
if we're thinking about you know savages who eat things mm. that, that we can we imagine as being really part of ourselves, um, Hinduism yes. has the story about beef, and Hinduism has a story about what what a national identity is. Yeah. And I wonder if you can maybe make concrete some of the discussion we've been having by by bringing us to, to sort of modern India and, and helping us understand yeah. how nationalism and food go together there. Yeah, that's a wonderfully important and indeed urgent set of questions. And I think a good uh, starting point for thinking about this very complex nexus of issues, uh, Hinduism, vegetarianism, Hindu-Muslim relations, uh, beef as a huge export and also as a as a as a as a big part of the diet of many people in India and yet mm-hmm. now flagged as the sign of something very, very bad by some people, notably those running the government today and the Hindu right in general. I think this is a very complex nexus of issues. But I think a good entry point is Mary Douglas, another great anthropologist of food, and her also really signally important book, 1966, Purity and Danger. And we can, Mm. I think, make some progress by asking how purity and danger uh, have come to be central to contemporary Indian politics, and particularly the politics of the Hindu right uh, in India. And as you recall, Mary Douglas's brilliant observation was that Uh, danger is seen to arise at those points at which things that should be kept apart are mixed. And that purity is a matter of keeping things apart from things they oughtn't to be confused with. And danger is perceived to exist in those places where those categories are confused. And of course, those categories being cultural categories, Purity always has to be identified in any particular place. We don't know what it might be seen to lie in. And in India, to make a cut with Mary Douglas into the contemporary Indian situation, we might say that for a very long time, uh, for a certain branch of the Hindu, uh, particularly Brahmin elite, today now it's not just Brahmins, but Hindu ideologues or Hindutva ideologues, neo-Hindu ideologues, Uh, one of the central definers of purity and the purity of Hindus and of Hinduism is the figure of the cow. Mm. Therefore, beef is seen to be a thing apart, a thing meant to be kept apart, and a thing meant to be kept apart in its living form. Therefore, the killing of the cow and more even the eating of the cow is you might say in that sense a little bit like a cannibal act. It's an act of savagery. It's an act of those who are precisely not us. And Mary Douglas might say, if we follow Mary Douglas, we might say the distinction between us and them is played out on the body of the cow and who eats it as opposed to who uh, refuses to eat it and indeed treasures it, nurtures it, and so on and so forth. So... I think a good cut into this problem is to recognize that the cow, for a whole variety of historical reasons, has been placed at the heart of a kind of ideologically uh, galvanized Hinduism, starting at least in the second half of the 19th century. And that uh, impulse and that symbolization and that categorization of what is purest, what lies at the heart of pure Hinduism as opposed to sullied Hinduism, 
has been uh, always in an odd relationship to reality, both because that ideology has waxed and waned. It's now in a moment of heightened uh, uh, elaboration. But it's also been always in the face of the fact that uh, beef has been eaten by many, many populations, Muslims, Christians, other religious minorities, lower castes, untouchables, and a great many upper caste individuals in cities, in the countryside. And most important of all, uh, beef was eaten uh, historically, going back very, very far, by Hindu royalty, people who virtually symbolize the Hindu order, the Kshatriyas, the, the ruling classes and castes. So it's a very odd idea to have uh, the sanctity of the living cow be the symbol of a society in which many, many, many people, either for reasons of taste or for reasons of need, have eaten the flesh of the cow. So we have some kind of tension here, which I think is very old uh, in Hinduism, between the kind of ascetic renunciatory order, particularly associated with Brahmins, and the royal order, which is an order based on violence and notably in religious terms on sacrifice, including the sacrifice of uh, cattle and even of the cow. Now, this is not something that is widely conceded by people on the Hindu right about Hindu history in ancient India, but it's a fact. But what is surely a fact is that the cow is consumed by all kinds of people in India when it's possible to do so. So the effort to vilify those who might eat the cow or might be seen to eat the cow, notably Muslims, but also others, is one of these very bizarre cultural projects which takes as its enemy something rather widespread. Uh, but then, you know, the the current regime in India is doing that with many, many things, uh, taking on as its opponent many behaviors, many ideologies, many practices, many leaders. For example, Nehru is the current bad boy of Hindutva politics. Now, that's a very big deal since Nehru was the icon of independent India for all of his life and for many decades after, to now have him seen as the essence of all kinds of wrong things is a similar thing to the effort to restrict and vilify the eating of the cow. But let me circle back to your comment about cannibalism, uh, which it's true was uh, a, a heightened object of interest in the colonial uh, period of anthropology and remains of some interest uh, now. But both then and now, it was always recognized as a special or, if you like, extreme form mm. of human behavior, the parallel to which is incest mm. in sexual behavior. That is known but very rare and almost defining of the boundaries of humanity, though performed by some humans. Mm. But why cannibalism, I think, is relevant, though people always knew it was a infrequent human practice, um, is because it put to the test the question of what was edible. Mm. What could humans eat and not eat? And both Levi-Strauss and Mary Douglas and many others 
of course, have observed how wide the range is of what humans consider edible, but also how intensely different societies feel about the things that they consider horrific, awful, or disgusting to eat. So the force is commonplace, but the items differ. Mm. This is the peculiar thing about our species. And it reminds me of an aphorism that I use frequently when I try and teach about culture in general to anthropology students. And that is an aphorism that comes from the great Clifford Geertz, which uh, was the following, uh, following. He said, to be human is to be Javanese because he was a scholar of Java, among other places. And what he meant is to be human is not really about our difference from monkeys or birds or dinosaurs or other species. It's actually that quality that makes us feel very different from each other. That is, to feel Javanese rather than Balinese, to feel Japanese rather than Chinese, and so on and so forth. That that intense ideological sensation that humans have is the thing that makes us human, not the fact that they are bipedal and we have language and so on, <laughs> those general characters. So you see something about food prohibitions in general becomes a way in which humans tend to think about what makes them uh, both distinctive, that is Javanese or Indian or Chinese, and properly human. So when you get that conflation that the thing that makes us most Indian is also the thing that ma makes us most human, then you are in a, in a sticky territory which can quickly become uh, xenophobic, violent, etc. because it's very high stakes. It's about why you are different and there the cultural question becomes the national question. And uh, why you your difference is really about truly being human uh, in the way that others somehow are not quite human when they eat these awful things or do other awful things that you consider abhorrent. So this is a very roundabout uh, response to your question about contemporary India, but the short way to put it is that something in the rise of the Hindu right has placed the question of the cow at the heart of the question of what it is to be Indian. And the people paying the price for that are primarily Muslims, but also a lot of other Indians who are out of need would, would want normally to have access to cattle and to beef when possible. You know, here in the U.S., there's been a lot of rhetoric about pigs and yes. um, dipping the the bullets in pig blood and things like that. And, and it's not really just the right wing. I mean, mm. in pop culture and contemporary culture, there's this I love bacon movement right. and this, you know, this emphasis on pork and bacon and things like that. It's yes. um, kind of heightening as other anti-Muslim rhetoric is coming into play. Yes. So you think we're moving yes. to a world of, uh, instead of as, as American as apple pie, as, as American as a bacon sandwich. As American as a bacon <laughs> BLT. Yeah. Right? Yeah, there you go. Well, that's really, uh, I think, very closely connected. And, and a direct link, of course, is the uh, widely circulated idea that during the so-called Indian mutiny, mutiny of 1857, where many Indian soldiers belonging to Indian princes and so on rose up against uh, the British Raj and were put down very fiercely uh, in the last, what it says, the last armed insurrection on the part of Indians against British rule, 1857. One of the triggers was supposed to be a rumor spread 
that pig's grease had been applied to some cartridges which had to be bitten off to be fired by troops who were sometimes Hindu. Uh, so you see the, the this kind of ISIS-type deployment of the pig is not entirely just about this continent, about the present. There is an older history also in India where, uh, as it were, these demarcations about what is edible and what is not uh, can also be used in a kind of hostile, active, uh, uh, xenophobic, assertive way as opposed to in an avoidance mode. So the, the cow be avoiding beef is the kind of ascetical, Hinduistic kind of answer. And then eating pork is the aggressive, you might say, Kshatriya-style answer. We will do that because you think it's a bad thing to do. We'll do it and we'll enjoy it. Uh, wow. And in other words, we will enjoy the fact of that thing, which you consider most abhorrent, which we consider uh, not necessarily the least abhorrent, but certainly entirely pleasurable and positive. One question I have is thinking about food and nationalism. And I yeah. think about in the 18th and 19th centuries when the sort of European nation states are kind of, kind of defining themselves as nations. Yes. They're also consolidating these empires in the, yes. you know, in Asia and Africa, et cetera. Yes. Um, and, and food obviously pay, played a role in the sort of emergence of France as a nation and Germany as a nation and so yes. on. Yes. And then we, we get to the last century where you have this new nationalism breaking out in the old, in the old empires, in the old empire territories. Yes. And, uh, and so now it's the opposite where instead of consolidating empires, you've got nations that are breaking away from empires and Correct. emerging themselves. And how does, how does the role of food differ in these two situations? It's a marvelous question, and certainly in the Indian case, what leaps to mind is Gandhi, of course, who famously in his uh, autobiography, The Story of My Experiment with the Truth, talks about exploring meat-eating because it was associated with masculine, uh, with masculine uh, strength and Christian virtue and the power of, of the British and so on. And then, of course, the rest of his life was a story of why you don't need that kind of power based on meat eating. And he puts abstinence, including vegetarianism, a very radical kind of vegetarianism, at the heart of his breakaway nationalism, at the heart of his speaking of truth to power, uh, of India to Britain, of self-rule, uh, Swaraj, self-rule, Satyagraha, truth power. Those key Gandhian concepts were, for him, intimately wrapped up with his bodily practices, most notably his food practices, uh, which were hyper-vegetarian and, in fact, more radical even than uh, the religious and ethnic tradition into which he was born. So Gandhi is a great case of precisely, uh, as it were, turning this force against uh, the oppressor. Uh, I'm not quite sure, uh, partly because my expertise doesn't range that widely, to how this might have played out in Africa, uh, the Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, the other major sites of industrial 
uh, of the imperialism associated with industrial capitalism in Europe. I'm not sure where there were similarly dramatic efforts to put food uh, at the center of what it meant to be independent of the erstwhile colonial ruler. My feeling is that in these other parts of the world, that food uh, was either a bit more neutral or became a bit more defining of shared characteristics between ruler and ruled and not the site of the big brick. But that's an empirical question. It may well be that there are Gandhi-style food-based politics, uh, anti-imperial politics in other parts of the world. I just don't know enough to know. Arjun, I have a question about some of your work on imagination. The thing that's really interesting to me is that looking back, like retrospectively, you can see how things are moving towards shaping an imagination, which is moving towards shaping people to think about themselves differently, which (coughs) um, shapes identity, nationalism, culture, and everything. And I'm wondering, when you're thinking about looking at the way that imagination can work, um, giving people agency toward movement for their own autonomy, I guess. I wonder about the the power that you would associate with imagination when thinking about social mobility. Well, you know, I think, of course, that the interesting thing about food, and here again, it bears a considerable resemblance to the power of sex and sexuality and goes back to your question about why anthropology has not been more attentive to food. But the common thing there is that both of them are elemental, elementary, evolutionary, hardwired, all that. But they also seem profoundly malleable uh, and culturally variable, which means it must be that the human imagination works on those elementary things, making it possible, you know, to marry a tree among some groups and, you know, marry a crocodile or or have four wives as opposed to one, or indeed have practices, as in the ancient Egyptian aristocracy and some other special cases, of sanctioned incest. The, the one thing that almost everyone seems to abhor. Uh, so, like sex, food seems to be simultaneously elementary, elemental, natural, uh, and... Uh, primal in its force, at the same time, immensely open to the work of the imagination. So that's a background observation that that I think that is why food and sex are very powerful, because they're simultaneously biomaterial, biophysical, as well as incredibly receptive to being palettes for the work of the imagination, cultural imagination, individual imagination, social imagination, and so on. So that's a background observation. Then, when you fast forward to our world, and let's say the world of globalization, and preceding it, the world of uh, the industrialization and commodification of foods, about which people like Jack Goody have written very uh, interestingly, and in a slightly different way, Sid Mintz, uh, that period of the 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, in essence, when industrial capitalism meets food production, distribution, and consumption, notably in the colonies, 
So the importance of tinned food, the supply of food to armies, the transformation of domestic foods in the colony by the availability of transport, storage, and, uh, and uh, uh, production technologies, which uh, allowed for long-distance movement of food. The long-distance part gets, under industrial capitalism, tied to the production of uh, foods which can link uh, classes, very diverse classes together. It does have a kind of flattening effect. So we have two dynamics going on. One is that industrial uh, food production methods and distribution methods do create a new kind of set of bridges between the working and proletarian classes and elite classes. They do create a measure of flattening. On the other hand, we know that the race uh, uh, to produce what Pierre Bourdieu would call distinction never slows down. So the more you have commodities that are within everybody, everybody's reach, the more you have the race to create a new luxuries, new things either in terms of expense, access, mode of production, uh, storage, distribution, which are available only to the very few. So there's an eternal race between industrialization, commodification, and massification of food, and the resulting effort of the upper classes to set themselves apart. And then the continuing race, especially on the part of the middle classes, not so much the working classes, to uh, emulate uh, uh, those uh, above them and to seek to close the caste gap, the, the class or caste gap, and to achieve, assert uh, their own ability to uh, eat, if you like, tastefully, discriminatingly expensively, all of which are uh, connected things. So <clears throat> when I look at a place like India today, if you look at the, uh, the, the now much observed popularity of these uh, uh, very cheap noodles that are being eaten by everybody all over, there is a kind of place where you might say there's a flattening of class and caste and regional and other hierarchies. But for every such case of something like noodles, uh, there is uh, a corresponding effort. Uh, for example, high-end, uh, globally-oriented ethnic restaurants developing in the big cities of India, which by both knowledge, expertise, and price are out of the range of uh, not only poor people, but most of the middle class. So these two dynamics are both going on and both involve a kind of politics of the imagination. Uh, the eating of the, the commonly available, industrially produced, fast, convenient, etc., which creates flattening, requires the imagination to enjoy it. <laughs> and uh, the very... Uh, specialized stuff, you know, people eating in Burmese restaurants in Bombay or whatever, also requires a kind of counter-effort of the elite imagination to say, well, okay, now what do we have left uh, to us, which both sets us apart from our local inferiors and puts us in the same place as our global peers? Well, 
and I, I wonder if I can then bring bring that back to to think mm-hmm. about nationalism. I mean, yes. first of all, I mean, I, 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 I love the way that this conversation is is thinking about who gets to apply imagination. I mean, there was a, there was an article in the yes. Wall Street Journal. Uh, on March 22nd um, that talked about how uh, a lot of the big fast food companies in India are having a very tough time um, because they're not uh, applying their imaginations sufficiently to uh, be able to create uh, you know, think thinkably and edible foods for uh, the Indian middle class, and so they're, they're having to tweak yes. their recipes um, because the recipes just aren't the sort of things that people actually can imagine themselves eating because they don't taste very good. Yes, um, but but it's also but, but I, th- I think that there's there's also a, a question that, that I had rereading your your 1988 essay, um, yeah. where you, you you talk about how. Um, in, in the making of this national cuisine, what's kind of interesting about India, and you, you, you observe this of a few other places, is, is that there's, there's a there's a kind of regionalism. You know, Gujarati yes. food is yes. uh, tastes one way, and Bengali food is another way, India. and you know, and and you get to have these sort of entertaining, um, yes. uh, you know, sort of prejudices about well, the Gujaratis are all you know always eating this kind of thing, and they've always got you know sweets in yes. their mouths tucked in their cheeks, yes. whereas the Bengalis are always sort of hankering after the next fish, and the Punjabis yes. just yes. can't yes. put down their bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label or whatever it is. I mean, you know. The, Yes. There are these sort of um, uh, these very sort of heterogeneous ideas of the food culture in India, and then since writing that essay, you know, a few years afterwards, Coke and Pepsi come in and they yes. try and re- reform a national identity for themselves. So Coke and Pepsi have this very kind of you know they try and position themselves as meaning soft drinks or cold drinks, and the word Tanda or the word you know the the, the, yes. the words Pepsi and Coke start to have a very national meaning in a way that, that's the same from the very tip of you know, the southern tip of India all the way up to the Himalayas. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether you see that these are, you know, actually Coke and Pepsi are the real national unifying cuisines of India in a way that maybe uh, the cookbooks that you write about in, in 1988 yeah. uh, aspire to be but never quite reach. So, I mean, is, is Coke actually what it says, you know, when you like to, I mean, that song, we'd like to sing, teach the world to sing in perfect harmony and everyone comes yes. together and they're all bloody holding coke um is is that actually uh, happening in india do you, do you see that there's an argument to be made well you know the coke thing is certainly an important part of what has happened in india over the last 20 years since i wrote that essay but also this this noodle example is to me fascinating can, can you I mean, is, just for people who don't know what the noodles are can you maybe explain what they are and who makes yes them? this is you know these packaged uh uh pasta like noodles just the way we think about noodles except they are spiced in an Indian way and very easy to cook very fast, either at home or on the street, and have a certain crossover reference to to Chinese food. So puzzlingly, you would think, would remain in a kind of special ethnic food sector in India. And by the way, this connects to one of my $64,000 questions for anybody concerned with food habits in India. My joke uh, about what is unifying India, Pepsi, Coke, noodles, it's none of the above. It's, are you ready? Chinese food mm-hmm. is the only thing that unites all castes, all classes, all types of restaurants, domestic eating, restaurant eating, uh, street vendors, high-end, and this has happened essentially over the last 25, 30 years. So when I was growing up in Mumbai, there were about six known Chinese restaurants. It was a niche ethnic food. 
And that was true in about, let's say, 10 other Indian cities. Now, can you name a restaurant in a place like Mumbai, and I mean humble little holes in the wall that does not have a little list at the end of Chinese food? So mm. it can be Gujarati, Andhra, Chinese, Punjabi, Western, Chinese. The only non-negotiable thing at the end is the Chinese part. And the Chinese part, of course, is somewhat Indian. It's chop suey and Gobi Manchurian and this and that. Mm. But it is Chinese. And it is everywhere. So this noodle craze, which has transformed the Indian fast food world, has something to do with this other mysterious and almost nowhere analyzed story of the India-wide victory of Chinese away from being a separate, enclaved, high urban ethnic eating experience to being chapter three of any and every menu you'd care to name with very few exceptions mm -hmm. uh, at all levels of restaurant in India. So I have no explanation for when and how this happened, especially since after 1962, there was good reason for Indians to be generally suspicious of Chinese food to the you extent that the there historical. was an ideology of vegetarianism certainly doesn't put Chinese food at the center of things. Hmm. How did this particular exotic food take off this way? Uh, I would I've asked my Indian foodie expert friends to answer this to me and I've still to get a satisfying answer. But it speaks to your question What's unifying from top to bottom? Strangely, I think it's this imaginatively Indianized version of Chinese food. It is really the thing from Kashmir to Kanyakumari that's everywhere. Uh, and uh, how it quite, I think it does relate to things like the popularity of noodles, which are in fact called noodles. They're not called, you know, vermicelli or samia or some Indian thing. It's noodles. And then, of course, there are the soft drinks. But to me, you see the whole soft drink industry, both Coke, Pepsi, and the Indian counterparts, Fanta and this and that, they operate in a slightly different space than the space of uh, solid comestibles, you know? Hamburgers, dosai, noodles. The soft drink world, to me, has a kind of slightly different dynamics in relation to class, sociality, pleasure, uh, entertainment. It's, it's somehow, uh, you might say, in Derrida's sense, a supplement. You know, it's not the driving heart of things. Uh, but I don't know whether that wandering set of responses takes us... Uh, well, well, I mean, it, it, certainly, j just to, to, to fill in, in in 1962, India and China went to war. Uh, yes, not, not not all of our listeners will uh, will know that, though, though you all should. Uh, but um, but it is a long time ago. But it was a very <laughs> momentous event. Well, but, very momentous. Well, so I mean, can, can you just just fill in the background for for us? Um, to, just to understand why it, it might be a bit weird then to celebrate the food of the um, of, of China yeah. And India. So so India and China now see themselves as the major competitors for being the top Asian economy and possibly therefore the top world economy. So measuring India and China's progress is the most popular sport hmm. of Indian journalists, political analysts, government types, everybody. 
But there's a long history where these two countries, which are actually geographically adjacent and divided by Nepal and Tibet and a few other countries, but really very close to each other, had a very partial relationship to each other. But after independence, in Nehru's time, which was also the time of Mao and Mao's right-hand man, Chou Enlai, there was a huge effort to create what was called Hindi, Chini, Bhai Bhai, Indians and Chinese brothers. Mm -hmm. And Nehru was a huge advocate of this, along with a set of principles called the five principles, Panchila, principles of peace, mutual understanding, etc., between India and China. Major presences in uh, Asia. And then, for a series of reasons having to do with border disputes and so on, this war occurred where the Chinese trounced the Indian troops, very badly prepared Indian troops, in the Himalayas and basically crossed the Himalayas and were in the plains. Could have just marched to Delhi. At that point, all sorts of world diplomacy and power came into play. The Americans, all sorts of others who said, you better not do that. So the Chinese withdrew, but made it clear that they had hammered India and were not India's friends. And if really, if they were offended, would not hesitate to invade India militarily. So it was a huge trauma. A few years before Nehru's death, it broke his heart. It changed his picture of what the Chinese were. So in short, the India-China thing, even going back to 1962, is a very fraught war in Indian memory. And now the kind of soft competition between India and China, uh, along with some, some border issues and so on in the Himalayas, which continue is uh, makes that relationship a very odd one for something like Chinese food to become as central <laughs> as it has in India. So that's the context for this puzzle to which I have no answer, no really good uh, solution because it could have been, you know, Italian food, right, Middle right. Eastern food. <laughs> Noodles, yeah. You know, there are plenty of choices. <laughs> um, Speaking of history, while I was reading your uh, fantastic 1988 essay, which everyone should read, How to Make a National Cuisine, I, I was thinking about something that was happening simultaneously in the same kind of 25-year period that you're mm -hmm. talking about, of this sort of rise of, of cookbooks yeah. and in this attempt to create a national cuisine. Also, there was, you know, at the same time, this period of in the industrialization of agriculture, um, you know, famously known as the... Green Revolution, which India yes. was the center of. And I'm wondering how these two forces related. So you've got the rise of monocultures and in a lot of areas, um, the yeah. um, de-diversification of agriculture. Yes. Um, and then meanwhile, you've got this attempt to create a national cuisine that respects, uh, you know, regional cuisines at the same time. So how did all that fit together? Well, that's a very tough question and a very good one because you're right that these are parallel processes uh, and I've never really thought about them uh, in the same breath or on the same page, but that should be done. My uh, very uh, uh, ad hoc thought is that this is a, uh, especially the tension between the regional and the national. Uh, in that regard, this is again an interesting instance where, uh, let's say, cultural expressions, and we can count food, if we can count food as one of those, tend to be the site 
for the play of ideologies of difference and diversity, whereas the political economy tends to be the site for driving processes of nationwide development, which include monoculture and include irrigation, which was crucial to the Green Revolution, fertilizer, things that were being pushed powerfully to all farmers throughout India, but exemplified in the Punjab. So you might say the business where the political economy is being tightly centralized, integrated, and kind of developmentalized uh, calls for the need to play out the drama of difference, diversity, etc., to which India is also very attached at another level. And that's where food is perfect, where we can say, well, you know, we have all these numerous cuisines, they're all Indian, but all Indian in a different way. It's the old unity and diversity platform of Indian nationalism played out in the food arena. Meanwhile, backstage, pesticides, fertilizers, uh, new forms of grain, irrigation, all the things that had very uh, uh, deleterious effects over time, but at that time was seen as driving the Punjab and making Punjab the poster child for all Indian farming everywhere. That's going on backstage and the front stage is, don't worry about it, we're still very diverse, you know. Uh, and yes, it is true that at one level, you know, the diversity of Indian cuisines is, is very remarkable, but it's not diversity at the level of the crops, the materials through which the crops are coming, the full range of vegetables, seasonal availability of things. If you studied all that closely, you'd probably see a shrinkage. Uh, but the level of 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 uh, you know taste and and uh, and forms of spicing and so on and so forth, uh, the variety is real enough. You mentioned the rise of um, Chinese food in association yes. with Indian food, but also at the same time, um, Indian food has been has become a symbol of what it is to have a British cuisine. So, like Britain has kind yes. of taken on this um, this sense yep. of you know, associating itself with Indian cuisine. Um, so Very that, good, right? I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. And then also before you go, food trucks. <laughs> yeah, food trucks, yeah. Well, uh, the first on the British thing, very interesting. It's clear that uh, food is the most uh, productive site <laughs> of Indo-British relations in England, uh, where we have all kinds of other violence, discrimination, exclusion, uh, going berserk uh, in the UK in the last 40 to 50 years, uh, that food remains the site of a kind of uh, counter-narrative to the narrative of we've lost the empire, the empire struck back, they've taken over our cities, our jobs, <laughs> and so on and so forth. Uh, all the debates of multiculturalism, none of them seems to bring anything hot or divisive into the space of food, which seems to be, in England, certainly a case where uh, the once colonial power, the, metropol the metropolis, has identified powerfully with this particular part of its colonial world, India, in other words. So it is an interesting thing, and I think relatively unusual. I mean, I don't think we have couscous, for example, having this kind of life in French cities. Uh, 
You have a little bit of that with Indonesian food in Holland, mm. uh, but I think nowhere as with Indian food uh, in England, which of course also has to do with the scale of migration from Indian, uh, but but from South Asia generally, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, India, which is in British cities, you know, really a very massive demographic presence. So, so there is that as well as I think a kind of friendly and avuncular identification or a sentimental affili- uh, uh, identification with the colony separate from the anger, racialized anger about real South Asians in the streets. Uh, so somehow there's something strange and interesting uh, there, but that's about all I can usefully say on the on the British question. The food trucks, I don't know whether you're thinking here or anywhere. Well, you know, here in Austin, it's really interesting because we have these food trucks where you sell things like ramen that, yes. like, I mean, at crazy high prices to people. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, the food truck, which has been typically... My understanding of it is it's something for the lower classes, it's something for the Correct. workers, you know, things that are on the street are now kind of being appropriated in many ways. There's yes. one here called the white girl Asian food food truck, <laughs> which is yeah. amazing. And, um, and, and so, it, it, so this appropriation um, of kind of like a, a more bourgeois uh, yes. fixture in the city is really fascinating. And I wonder what you think about that. Well, I think there's something going on about it. In New York, it's very visible that we have trucks that are very basic. And uh, the best example of that is the halal uh, Middle Eastern trucks, which are all, I think, many, many of them are run by a single franchise, Rafiki's, which which gives falafel sandwiches and chicken platters and so on. Middle Eastern, cheap, uh, and really eaten by anybody who wants a cheap, substantial meal. Uh, but which are just, you know, which are one step above the hot dog vendors and so on, but still cheap. And then you have every slot above that, including people now doing Belgian potatoes and, you know, all kinds of exotic things for which you pay fairly high prices. Empanadas, right around NYU, you have quite a range of, let's say, higher end uh, places. I don't think in New York you still have a real, uh, really massive presence of expensive food trucks uh, because the, the, the restaurant world is still too powerful uh, for that to be easy to do. Uh, that's my impression anyway of New York. But uh, I'm just told that in India you're now beginning to get food trucks which are clearly for the upper middle classes, which are not about vending, you know, in the classic Indian mode, uh, low prices, speed, convenience, and often very, very uh, low uh, conditions of cleanliness, hygiene, and so on, which characterizes 95% of the Indian food vending, street vending scene. But now I'm told these trucks are coming in India, which are markedly not for that proletarian, office worker, or laboring class. They're for others. I don't know much about those, but I do have a feeling that the food truck phenomenon worldwide 
is now becoming highly differentiated, especially as uh, urban real estate becomes more expensive, uh, so that restaurants are, are now, you know, more than ever before a high-risk venture, uh, that trucks will be become a place for all kinds of... But it's also, you know, these trucks to me also like the new phenomena like pop-up restaurants where people rent space and cook and serve food. So there are all kinds of other sort of guerrilla food arrangements going on that I don't understand fully, but I'm not surprised by them because the consumption needs of the urban working professional and middle classes, students, and so on continue to differentiate, to look for variety and change and difference, but also to be uh, 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 powered by consumers who cannot afford expensive real estate and so on, but can put out money on food. So that's my thought for what it's worth. Uh, <laughs> if, that's, if that's all right. Fair well, enough. Thank you so much for making the time to, to come. Well, it's a great pleasure. Terrific questions. What a great idea for a show. And I hope we'll continue to be in touch in one or other uh, format uh, in the future. Arjuna Padarai is the Goddard Professor in Media, Culture, and Communication at New York University, where he's also the Senior Fellow at the Institute for Public Knowledge and the author of The Future as Cultural Fact, Essays on the Global Condition. You've been listening to The Secret Ingredient with Raj Patel, Tom Philpot, and me, Rebecca McEnroy. You can find more information about this show, our show archive, links, and much more at thesecretingredient.org. On our next episode of The Secret Ingredient, we talk with Dr. Rob Wallace, author of Big Farms Make Big Flu, about the ways influenza and other pathogens emerge from an agriculture controlled by multinational corporations. We'll connect influenza, Ebola, Zika, and much more. Also, make sure you never miss an episode. Subscribe to The Secret Ingredient in iTunes or on SoundCloud, and leave us a review while you're there. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. The Secret Ingredient is engineered by David Alvarez and produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. I was torn between the question that I asked and then the question that I kind of wish that I did ask. And I wanted to say that I wanted to ask about how the Nation Building Project is both an internal project like creating an identity as a Frenchman or an American or an Indian, Mm. but it's also outward looking and you create this sort of national brand. Like you're not really a nation until people think of you, until people accept the idea of France as a nation or America or or India. And so uh, food plays a role in that as well. Uh, National cuisines get exported. And so I wanted to ask as uh, as a New Yorker living in the United States now, what he thinks of the sort of Indian food brand from um, Indian restaurants in Manhattan to cookbooks like those of Julie Sani or Madar Jaffrey. Mm-hmm. Um, what does he think of the way that this sort of effort that he's talking about in this 1988 essay ended up gets ex- getting exported globally and what sort of image that it's portrayed and 
how it looks to an Indian in America now? That's the question I wanted mm-hmm. to ask. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the Mother Jeffrey cookbook question is one. We, we, we were talking about it just before uh, we started recording. Uh, uh, again, for people who don't know, Mother Jeffrey, uh, her cookbooks were something of a sensation in Britain in the 1980s because there weren't. Uh, I mean, she, she was the face of Indian cooking on TV at, at a time where, um, you know, the the, the 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 cooks on television um, were, if, if I'm correct, almost all women, but they were white. And so here was someone telling you how to make uh, Indian food. And it was it, it, it was very empowering as a British Asian to see that face. Um, but the food wasn't very good. And Raj... Was she? She was. She was an actress. Is that right? Yeah. She was an actress in India wow. from Bollywood, right? Am I, am I correct? And 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 then she she made it in Britain as a as an actress, right. uh, you know, picking up the the parts of Asian women in uh, in BBC shows. Okay. Um, among other things, but I mean, she she, she sort of her, her niche was as a sort of represent, representative of uh, a certain kind of cooking and and place and culture, even though, as I say, the food sucked. Um, <laughs> but it become but but it's you know it's and uh, we we could have had an interesting conversation with Arjun, I think about uh, about that because he seems to like the cookbook, but he seems also not to have tried the recipe. That was also thirty years ago. That was thirty it. years ago. But, but it sucked. It sucked back then too. But um, it's interesting <laughs> so because funny. because when I was learning how to cook and teaching myself how to cook in the probably early to mid 90s and when I thought it when I sort of moved in the direction of India because I was fascinated with the food um, loved curries she was the cookbook that I found in the shop and and cooked from mm. f- for years and later I think I replaced her with um, Julie Sani I, I don't know if you know that name I think she's a she's an American Indian who lives in New York who um, taught cooking classes made a name for herself in the 80s and 90s by teaching cooking classes to people in New York and then has written some really fantastic cookbooks from my perspective as someone who's never been to India and doesn't really know that much about the cuisine. Um, but yeah, so that, that was the conversation I wanted to have is sort of how do you, um, how do you um, export this idea of, of the nation? Once you've built it, you have mm-hmm. to export it and have a, a reputation. And I, th- I think food is a big part of PR and there is sort of a, a brand associated with the, um, with, with the nation's food. Mm. God, it makes me think so much of like, well, one, authenticity, like the role of authenticity in the right. idea of nation building, but then the the role of the refugee. And and also, I mean, to, to think about how that plays out over here, I mean, what I like about Eric's book, we should, we should, we should talk about that in another show, but, but I also think, you know, th- th- there's a way in which we have these ideas of people coming over and they're bringing their cuisines. <clears throat> in Britain, 80 to 90% of uh, the chefs in Indian restaurants come from one town of half a million people in, in Bangladesh, hmm. um, in the eastern bit of Bangladesh, Silhet. And so all these Silhetis are coming over and doing it, Indian food in ways that look authentic. But Silheti food is kind of crappy. Um, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's it's sort of famous for a dried fish dish, um, okay. but it, it it doesn't look like what it is that people understand in Britain Indian food to look like, um, because they're making it up for for a white audience. I mean, in the same way that Tacos. chop suey, right? Exactly. Oh, yeah. I mean, so so, so the, the Indian curry in the way that it it emerges in Britain is is a very syncretic food. It's not some pure sort of we have come from the motherland with bags of spices on our back to bring you this thing that we cook for our children. No one in India eats that stuff. Um, it's it's made up, but it's made up. In a very interesting way to play to a, to, a, to a series of different audiences, and I think that's what's interesting about the Cambodia story is that actually there's there's a there's a, there's a mediation. Um, there's nothing pure about the here we are and here is here is our gift to you. Uh, here is the cuisine.
seen. And, but it's much more about how it is that um, refugees are received and how much that reflects back. I mean, in, in, in the Indian case, they're not refugees, but but uh, in, in, in we're getting into a story of refugees about the reflection of how it is that we need refugees, what we need refugees to be doing. Yeah, that's exactly. that's a story for another time. KUT is here to keep you and our community informed. As the station delivers exactly what you expect when you need it most, remember that it's financial support from listeners that make it possible. Join today at KUT.org. And thank you.